0: When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of God.
1: Our Father, we come to your word. uh, Wanting you to speak to us, we pray. We pray you'd have something for each one of us here in this Bible story this morning. Whether we're really very familiar with the Bible or we've hardly ever heard of the Bible before. And we don't know what this is all about. We pray you would bless each one of us. By your spirit, through the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Have you ever heard of the phrase, Annus Horribilis? It's a phrase, if you've heard of it, uh, the the Queen used in 1992, I believe it was. uh, She had had an Annus Horribilis, a horrible year. And uh, as only the Queen can, she named a Latin phrase for it. And uh, it was a year when three of her children had got separated or divorced. And then in November, Windsor Castle had that enormous fire. And one of her homes nearly burned down. She said, I wouldn't want to go through that anus Horribilis again. It was awful. And we've been looking at the book of Acts in our sermon series, the book about the early Christian church, and they have had an Annus Horribilis in the bit that we just get to. Remember, last week, if you were here, um, Stephen preaches this magnificent sermon, but then gets stoned. And he becomes the first Christian martyr. They just kill him on the spot. And Saul is there at the heart of it all in chapter 8, verse 1, folding his arms. They lay their their clothes at his feet while they are um, stripping off in order to throw stones at Stephen and kill him. And what we discover at the start of our reading that Jolie's read to us is that the Christian church is scattered for the first time. Only the apostles, the twelve, remain in Jerusalem and everyone else has to go because it's not safe to be there anymore. What an annus horribilis. What a terrible time for the church. Surely this is it. I mean, they have the most fierce opponent they could possibly have dreamed of. Saul, the great Saul. I know he'll become Paul and the great apostle. But at the moment, he's Saul, the fierce opponent. You know, he's breathing out murderous threats. He's conniving ways that he can lock up Christians and put them in prison, or better still, kill them. And the whole church is scattered to the four winds. Surely this is it. Christianity. That was that. It lasted a couple of months. And yet... By the end of this story, it's not an annus horribilis. It's turned into the most wonderful opportunity for the gospel. It's turned into a great year for the kingdom of God. Why? Why? In fact, we could push that further. If, if we have had an annus horribilis, if we have had a terrible year, what is it in God's power, in the kingdom of God, what is it that could turn that terrible year around and make it a good year? What? What could possibly do that? What could be powerful enough to do that in my life and in yours? I want to contrast the two characters in our story together this morning. You'll see there's this guy called Simon. He's Simon the sorcerer. And Simon wanted a gospel of power. That's the first thing we'll see. Simon wanted a gospel of power. But then compared to him, you have Philip, the, the guy who comes down from the church And Philip took a gospel of a suffering Messiah. That's the second thing. Simon wanted a gospel of power, but Philip took a gospel of a suffering Messiah. And it is that simple gospel about a suffering Messiah. It's one guy going to preach in a new area, Samaria, which enables the whole situation to turn around. It's just the simple things that he's able to say about the Messiah. It's amazing. Now, we ought to know, just by way of introduction, we're dealing with a new a geography here. So we've expected this, if we've been looking in Acts, Remember, I mean, ever since Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, the gospel will go out to Jerusalem, that's the city at the center of it all, of course. Judea, that's the sort of region immediately around Jerusalem. Samaria, that's the bit we're getting to today. Samaria gets mentioned um, four times in our passage, very clear. The gospel is breaking new ground in Samaria in chapter 8. And that's where we've got to. And then you remember that phrase Jesus finishes up with? And to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria today, and the ends of the earth. And what we're dealing with, as we've seen, is the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot reign in Christianity once it gets going. There's just something about it that even when it's had an anus it keeps going. Because it is his gospel of the suffering Messiah. You can't put a cork in that bottle. So a new area, Samaria. Let's start off then. Simon wanted a gospel of power. Point number one. Simon wanted a gospel of power. You get this character, Simon. He's a sorcerer, of course, and he's used to power and magic, and he he deals with it in his everyday life. And we might think, well, look, who doesn't want a religion of power? Who doesn't want that sort of gospel? It sounds good. Wouldn't healings and power evangelism and the conversion of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge? I mean... Wouldn't that really help the cause of Christianity in this city? How fantastic. We've already noted though in Acts how the word of God spreads through suffering more often than not. Stephen gets murdered. Christians become refugees. Saul is a murderer. And yet Philip sees the opportunity in all of that suffering. Just have a look with me. I'd love it if you had your Bibles open with you still. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Look at this for an opportunity. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Fancy that. So they get scattered the four winds, the refugees go out and they think, oh, this is a new opportunity to speak about Jesus to some new people. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So Philip, opportunistic, takes the opportunity in this new city, spreads the message of Christianity. I have the name of Jesus to proclaim to you. It's accompanied by signs and miracles. And this Anas Heribolus turns into, do you see in verse 8, it was great joy. And then we get our man Simon turning up. Simon the sorcerer. He's a powerful magician. You know, uh, Paul Daniels, um, Darren Brown, all these guys. You know, they, they're in the same league as this guy. And uh, his life is built around people's oohs and ahs. You know, he loves to, res- to have the crowd respond to him, and he likes to earn a bit of money from it as well. Have a look at verse nine. This is where he enters. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and that all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So, you see, Simon, he's this incredible showman. He runs the circus in the town, and everyone looks up to him. He's fantastic. And yet, when Philip comes to town with his message of the suffering Messiah, Simon seems to think, This is something new. This is something I could go along with. I think I believe. And he's baptized along with everybody else. The circus man, you know, the, the um, circus ring man is baptized along with the rest of the town. And he also witnesses this. Two-stage coming of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that in the story? It's a bit weird. It's not really what we'd expect from the rest of Acts. And I'll explain in just a moment. But Simon witnesses that and it's going to be important in the story later on. This two-stage Holy Spirit thing which makes him prick up his ears. Maybe this giving of the Holy Spirit, he thinks, that could be a real crowd pleaser in my arena if I was able to hand out the Holy Spirit in the same way as the apostles. We'll come back to that. But look, look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What it seems to come down to is money. If I give you some money, can you give me this ability and I can buy my way into church power? He says, I was amazed recently to read an article just online. It was written by the nephew of a um, a prosperity preacher. Do you know what I mean by a prosperity preacher? The kind of guy who turns up in a dazzling white suit and sells out the O2 arena and he'll work his way around the around the world. And it's a sort of show-stopping tour where you can turn up and get healed, allegedly. And, and everything is, is uh, floodlights and glitz and glamour. And this guy who was writing the article was the nephew of this famous televangelist, prosperity preacher. He writes a very revealing article. He says, Before going to college, I took a year off and joined my uncle's ministry as a catcher, that is, someone who catches the people who are slain in the spirit, and as his personal assistant. That was a rite of passage in my family, as nearly every nephew worked for my uncle at some point. It was a show of loyalty and gratitude. And that year, before college, was a whirlwind tour of luxury, $25,000 a night royal suites in Dubai. Seaside resorts in Greece. Tours of the Swiss Alps. Villas on Lake Como in Italy. Basking on the golden coast of Australia. Shopping sprees at Harrods in London. And numerous trips to Israel, Hawaii and everywhere in between. The pay was great. We flew on our own private Gulfstream. And I got to buy custom suits. All I had to do was catch people. And look spiritual. Spiritual. And he describes, the reason he's writing the article is because the cracks began to appear in this ministry, which he began to realize, well, this really is all about earning my family money. It's really all about keeping us in power in a position of authority in these crusades, these shows, and not so much about helping people. He says, the first crack began to appear when I, I uh, had a friend at school and she'd lost her hair due to cancer. And I asked, well, look, if, if we're about healing, can we please go, go around to my friend's house and pray for her? And I was told, no, we only do healings in the crusades, you know, in the big shows. We're not going to go around. You see that? How very revealing. He, he realized that this is a ministry built on money and, and the changing hands of money in order to buy a position of power, which of course is what Simon is after in our story. You know, Simon's request in Acts chapter 8 has given rise to a word in the English language. Simony. I I don't think it gets used that that much very often. It's a bit old-fashioned. But simony is a word we have in English because Simon behaves in a simony way. He he says, can I give you some cash? And then you, you let me into your office in the church. That would be great. Thank you very much. Simony. And the church has a bad history of simony. I mean, the church worldwide down through the centuries... We're not a a Catholic church today. We're a a Protestant church in the Church of England. And that's because 500 years ago, to recap very briefly a lot of church history, the, the Roman Catholic Church was selling things called indulgences for money. So you could buy a certificate that would get you a certain amount of time off purgatory. It would get you to heaven quicker if you handed over some cash. And They had this phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs that was 500 years ago but the church has been guilty of it in other ways too i mean it wasn't even 500 years ago I, i am i'm not a catholic today even though i was brought up as one because 25 years ago my family was offered an indulgence and my parents thought this can't be right so protestants if you've heard that word before protestants are people who protest against that kind of church behavior Not that Protestants are innocent of it, of course. We need to be very careful that we're not governed by greed. That our desire for money doesn't govern our ministry. That's partly why we don't have a collection here on a Sunday. Have you ever noticed that? We don't pass a plate or a bag around. Um, It's it's so that people can come into church for the first time and you can sit here and you can hear about Jesus Christ totally for free. And you can become a Christian and be saved without having to pay a penny. And we want it to be that way. We don't want this to be about the changing hands of money. It's why ministers in the church traditionally receive a stipend rather than a salary. It's phrased very carefully so that um, I don't get paid for preaching the gospel. I get an allowance so I can live and spend the rest of my time preaching the gospel. And we need to be very careful that any of our ministries don't become about the exercise of power There was a time when I wanted to be a preacher for bad reasons. And I wanted to preach um, entertaining sermons that would make people laugh for some reason. And uh, I wanted to be famous amongst all the preachers in London. I thank God, I think he's made me a bit more realistic these days. (laughs) But I need to be mindful of Peter's rebuke. Do you see what Peter says to Simon in verse 20? May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. That phrase at the heart of it all your heart is not right before God. If you are involved in any sort of ministry, if you're a pastor, an elder, if you're involved in any sort of way of serving at church, if you lead a Bible study, if you are involved in any sort of workplace ministry, do make sure your heart is right before God. It is not about power and it is not about your name. That's the very simple thing about that phrase in the book of Acts that comes up again and again. It's all about the name of Jesus Christ comes up over and over again and sure enough Philip turns up in this story and he preaches the name of Jesus Christ to people. It's very revealing when I think well is my ministry actually about my name or is it about his name? Better to admit it now if my ministry is about my name and seek help so that it could be about Christ's name. So that's our first thing. Simon wanted a gospel of power. And let's compare that with the other guy in the story. That's Philip. And Philip took a gospel of a suffering Messiah. This is brilliant. This is the good news. Luke loves doing this. Luke, the man who wrote Acts, he loves setting up a little contrast. So today he gives us Simon the sorcerer and Philip the deacon, who was appointed in Acts chapter 6. And Philip turns up with this fantastic ministry, which is so simple. It's how it's it's so different from Simon's. Have a look at verse 12. Verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself baptized and believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Do you see? So he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, Obviously it means he turned up and talked about Jesus, but it, it means he turned up and he preached a weak message. It is eminently weak, isn't it, to turn up and say, I've got a savior for you. He was crucified. Yeah, that, I mean, that guy, you, remember, you might have heard about it. He was executed by the Romans a couple of months ago. That's the hope for your life. Well, what? People must have said, what? Until he went on to explain Philip rolls into lots of towns with this message, actually. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we actually looked at the next story, Philip and the Ethiopian, which is this fantastic story about um, Philip going up next to a chariot <laughs> and running, and there's this guy reading Isaiah 53, an Ethiopian guy who's a eunuch, and he's just been to Jerusalem, but he can't make sense of Isaiah 53. And Philip says, do you want me to explain it to you? <laughs> and he says, yes, please. And what he reads is this bit in verses 32 and 33. If you just flip over a page. Verses 32 and 33 of the same chapter. This is Philip's gospel of a suffering Messiah. The passage the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Interestingly, this is the, this is the gospel that Philip goes to explain to the Ethiopian. It's not the bit of Isaiah 53 I I think I would have picked. It's not the bit that says famously, he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. It's actually the bit just next to that, which just talks about humiliation, about being a lamb going to the slaughter, about a a sheep not opening its mouth and being deprived of justice and having no descendants. You see, it is incredibly weak. And Philip says, "This, this message is the hope for your life. There's a great bit of graffiti in Rome. Have we got a picture of that, Eleanor? Uh, I say great, it's pretty awful actually. Uh, But as ancient graffiti goes that's been preserved, Um, it's quite amazing. Maybe in a moment we'll see it. This was done by um, some Roman soldiers in a guardhouse in in the Roman world. And it was just in the era that we're talking about now when Christianity was spreading across the world. And um, it was... M evident that one of the Roman soldiers has become a Christian. And he's called Alex That was just his name. Alex the Roman soldier. And his mates were obviously not Christians because they did this graffiti on the wall mocking him. And um, if it comes up, I'm getting a shake of the head, so maybe we're having technological problems. What you get, you have to imagine this with me, is um, scrawled on the wall and still preserved for us today is a picture of a guy on a cross. Obviously. A representation of someone being crucified, and we're given to understand it's Jesus. And um, and then there's a guy kneeling next to him who is Alexamenos, and the scrawled bit of graffiti, mocking graffiti, says Alexamenos worships his god. And the thing that crowns it all is that the guy on the cross has a donkey's head. So he's utterly mocking of the fact that there's someone on a cross who could be your god. How ridiculous is that? Your God got crucified and executed. Ha ha. I mean, that's ridiculous. And of course, they're mocking Alex Aminos as he kneels and worships his God. Thanks, You don't need to worry about it now. Is that really... I mean, they've they've got a point, haven't they? Is is that really the hope of the world? Is a crucified guy on a cross, the, the, the one that God promised to send, is that really the thing that God is choosing to save the world with? Yes. For a couple of reasons. Firstly, that is the thing. The cross is the thing that makes God's name most glorious. Do you see that? It is at the cross where you see the power and the majesty of God most of all. Because it is just. It's entirely just as God punishes sin. And yet it's so loving and kind as God has mercy on people's sin. It's incredible as the, the name of God is uplifted in justice and in mercy. And it's also unstoppable you cannot stop that because all it takes for the message of the cross to spread for God to save the world is for someone to talk to someone else about it and then they can become a Christian and receive it by faith as well it's so unstoppable that we're still well we're not actually looking at graffiti this morning because we can't look at it but um, you can still see the graffiti from when they were talking about it 2000 years ago in ancient Rome it's just unstoppable because it spreads in persecution in persecution Even in an annus horribilis. It spreads by word of mouth because all you've got to do is go and talk to someone in your office about it or on your street about it. And it spreads totally free of charge because you can't buy it for money. Don't try and do that. This is always supposed to be free. What better thing for magnifying the name of God than that? Did you hear that a man called Billy Graham died this week? Billy Graham, he was a great um, American preacher. He was 99 years old, and um, he'd spent his life preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. And um, people like to criticize his ministry sometimes, um, but by all accounts, he preached to 215 million people during his life, live. Can you imagine that? 215 million people heard about Jesus Christ because of Billy Graham, including my mother-in-law. She was there. In 1954, he came to England. And he spent three months, this is why I found it particularly poignant this week, he spent three months preaching in Harringay, which is where I live. And he preached in the Harringay Arena for three months and he hired out the, the old um, stadium there and he filled it every night for three months with 12,000 people. How good is that? He just filled it, preaching about Jesus Christ every night, 12,000 people. On the last night of the three months, they had to start hire Wembley Stadium, 120,000 people, because they couldn't fit into Harringay anymore. But Billy Graham's ministry, it seems to me, was... was a ministry characterized just by a very simple message. He just wanted to turn up wherever he was. He'd just go to a new town, a new city, and he'd talk about Jesus Christ. It wasn't accompanied by enormous power, uh, you know, in enormous in, in money-changing hands. He wasn't interested in all of that. He just wanted to turn up and tell people about Jesus Christ. Please could I hire the biggest building in the neighborhood, and let me tell you about the suffering Messiah, please. And this country had its churches filled by that message in the 1950s. You can't stop that because it's an idea. It's an idea that God's given the world about how to be saved and forgiven. Philip took a gospel of a suffering Messiah. Now, you do, however, get this odd episode right in the middle of this story about the Holy Spirit. and um, You might be wondering about that, so let me try and explain. Let's read, shall we, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Intriguing, and we're not quite sure what to make of that. If you were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, surely that means you're a Christian. Uh-huh. Verse 17, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's this delay, do you see? They seem to become Christians, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. So why the delay? What's going on? Is this some sort of second blessing? You know, are we to expect that actually that we might become a Christian, but then receive the Holy Spirit later? No, I don't think so. This is still about proclaiming Jesus. Are we clear on that? Philip's been turning up. He's been proclaiming Jesus all along. So this has always been about the Christian message about Christ. But is the name of Jesus not enough? Well, two things. First of all, the instructions that Jesus gave people always were to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, weren't they? Matthew 28, the end of the Matthew's Gospel, he says, Go therefore and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's supposed to be a Trinitarian thing when people get baptized. But secondly, and I think most significantly here, the delay here is God's way, he deliberately builds in this delay, It's God's way of giving his official blessing to this Samarian, Samaritan advance. So God is, as it were, saying, look, I'm just going to wait here. I'm going to wait until Peter and John get there with all the, the authority of the church. I'm going to wait till they arrive so that everyone knows, and it's crystal clear, this is for the Samaritans too. And then I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 54 times in the book of Acts. Fifty-four times. Um, Twenty-eight of those times is to do with speaking. So he he either speaks directly or he gives people boldness to witness to to Jesus. Twenty-eight times. But then 19 times it's to do with initiating. So the Holy Spirit is a gift that um, God gives to all men and women who believe. And it's a gift that shows me that I'm a believer and here it's a wonderful reassurance that the samaritans too are believers these dis- despised people you remember the story of the good samaritan they were a hated people that's why the story of the good samaritan is such a shock <gasps> a samaritan helped oh my goodness but the samaritans here too they receive the holy spirit in god's grace so it's a deliberate delay to god showing that actually you guys are welcome in the kingdom of god too i think of it this way uh, Facebook. When Facebook first launched, uh, what was it? I think that was about 2005 and I was at university. And we felt very smug at university at that time because the universities in England got to get Facebook first. And uh, I was among the first cohort of things. You know, people were saying, what is this thing, this social media? And uh, did you know there's this thing called the Facebook? And you can go and sign up and you can actually see people's faces and all all about their lives. It's fantastic. Uh, And so there we were. We were logging on and experiencing this thing for the first time. And then I think the following year, Mark Zuckerberg announces, well, actually, I'm going to roll out Facebook to everybody. You no longer have to be a university student. Uh, Anybody is entitled to Facebook. And we were a bit cheesed off, actually. We thought, oh, Facebook is our thing. This is just for the universities. It made us feel special. And suddenly, anybody in any country... You know, my mum is using Facebook. <laughs> and then my great-aunt is using Facebook. And everyone's using it. But, of course, today, 2018, I suppose Facebook would claim that as one of the glories of the social media empire, wouldn't they? It is for anybody. And 2.2 billion active users, apparently, today, are logging onto Facebook and using it. It's for everybody, and I suppose they'd say it connects the world. Never mind about Facebook. The Holy Spirit is there for everybody. It's God's fantastic gift to the whole world, you see. So in this significant episode, he says to the Samaritans, let me give you the Holy Spirit. Let me connect you into the worldwide church and give you the greatest gift I can give you. And that's what they receive here. And he delays in order that they're sure, everybody's sure that they've had it. Two things just as we close. Two points of application. What sort of gospel will you trust? And what sort of gospel will you offer? Firstly, what sort of gospel will you trust? I wonder, will it be one of power and about building our name? Or will it be about a suffering Messiah? My granny died two weeks ago. My beloved granny. She was 87 years old two days before she died she became a Christian isn't that wonderful she was in a nursing home died on the Wednesday, became a Christian on the Monday she had two days living by faith and now she lives by sight she'd been a churchgoer her whole life my granny, going faithfully to her Church of England church, doing all the right things in that sort of Church of England way but it was pretty evident that she wasn't really trusting in Jesus Christ she didn't have a living faith, hadn't been born again I think she knew it too one day in the last few months of her life my mum, who's a great evangelist she went into the nursing home and she put on a service in the nursing home chapel specifically for my granny although she didn't say that but my mum got the biggest cross she could find this massive visual aid it was like a kid's talk on steroids but for old people (laughs) Excuse me, and she explains the gospel using this enormous cross and she's basically looking my granny right in the eye the whole time and nothing granny didn't want to talk about it afterwards she just did that conversationally and didn't want to know it was too weak a message of course it's very difficult to become a Christian because you have to shelve your pride admit that you're a sinner and that you need saving very difficult to become a Christian and then two days before she died my granny beckoned my mum close to her bedside and she said I want to be saved what a fantastically humble thing to be able to say and my mum explained Look, as, as you know uh, Jesus has died for all your sins all you've got to do is believe in him and you can go and be with him in heaven when you die and granny said I know that and my mum prayed a prayer and everyone cried <laughs> and it's frankly the best thing that's happened to us all year it's very weak to admit that you need that cross that you need a suffering saviour a suffering messiah and yet, that is the message that changed people's lives. It changes an annus horribilis. It changes the world. Will you trust that gospel? They're very weak in one sense and very wonderful in another sense. What sort of gospel will you trust? And finally, what sort of gospel will you offer? Philip just turns up and he gossips the name of Jesus Christ to people. It's so easy. It's so brilliantly simple. He just goes to a new place and finds a way of talking about Jesus Christ. I was struck that Simon Dixon, who used to work here as an evangelist, known to many of us, his advice on evangelism, if he could just get right to the heart of it, was talk about the man Jesus. Don't talk about your church so much. Don't talk about the you know, your, the things that you do as a Christian so much. Don't talk about the things that it makes you feel so much, but talk about Jesus Christ if you can, the person, the man. Talk about the man Jesus. And you see Philip doing that here. He, he turns up and he talks about the man Jesus and people have great joy. Can we offer Jesus to people? Well, God willing, I think I can, given the right opportunity. And imagine that, a, a church, a city where people gossip the name of Jesus. They're not manipulating or seeking to impress people with power or their name, but they're honestly just offering people a suffering Messiah that can change their world. Let's pray. Almighty God, how we thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you for a suffering Messiah who uh, turns our life upside down so much for the better. Thank you that this is not ultimately about our name and our glory. We're not in this for the money. But thank you that we're in it for a suffering Messiah who dies for our sins. So grateful for Jesus Christ today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.